I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. So I find January the incredibly optimistic time of year and it's full of hope, it's full of promise. There's things going on if you go into the garden, there are sort of little bulb noses poking up, there's something new happening every day. There's a sort of fundamental sense that the engine room of the garden, of the natural landscape, is just sort of stirring into life. You can almost hear it grumbling under your feet. There's this great sort of systolic pump of sap waiting to come up in only a few short months' time. That's Naomi Slade, author of RHS The Winter Garden, among many other garden must-reads. Whether you agree that January is particularly optimistic, it does seem, in my opinion, like a holding pattern. We're waiting on the runway, sensing that things will take off before we know it, but if we start to take notice of the details at this time, of the bulbs' noses poking up, as Naomi mentions, the real explosion of spring may not feel like an explosion at all, but the next step in our long journey back to the bright light of midsummer. In appreciating the little things at this time, the structural beauty, the winter flowers, the sound of birds amid the winter quiet, I think we can forge a deeper connection with the landscape, becoming part of everyday growth and proliferation. We're past the solstice and all goes up from here. It's time to both revel in the present and prepare for what's to come as the days get longer and warmer. So in this week's show, we're doing exactly that taking note of winter winds like winter flowering camellias and snowdrops and addressing RHS members' questions as we look ahead to the growing season to come. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. As some of the more glamorous shrubs, camellias offer bright colours, glossy leaves and dainty petals throughout much of the year. And now, even in January, there are winter flowering varieties that can still add a pop of colour to a sometimes drab backdrop. We travelled to RHS Garden Wisley to chat with Jack Aldridge, a horticulturalist who looks after Oakwood, a four-acre woodland garden there. Jack's a camellia enthusiast, keen to share his favourite varieties with winter interest, as well as his tips to successfully growing them. At the moment, we're sat on Battleston Hill, just off the, the main Broadwalk, and um, well, this is Wisley's main woodland garden. So, if people are coming to see woodland garden genera, 
and we sort of direct people in this direction or down to, to Oakwood. And it's got the perfect conditions that camellia, a lot of the, the camellias we grow need to thrive. And they've got this high canopy of, of large oak trees that provide sort of semi-shade, plenty of nice leaf litter. They're like a sort of cool, loose root run. And yeah, they're, they're a key component of the sort of winter landscape, both as evergreens. They sort of anchor various corners and provide evergreen backdrops and screening. And then obviously you've got the added bonus of being wonderful flowering shrubs from sort of, yeah, winter through to spring. There are large-ish genus of around 60 species overall, and about, about four of which are properly hardy and have been grown for many years in, in gardens. And they're, they're anything from sort of medium to large evergreen shrubs with sort of simple glossy dark green leaves and flowers ranging in, in shape and size from simple single flowers to double flowers and, and into kind of more pom-pom types. So much like dahlias, they have a sort of a range of different flower types. And the colour range ranges from sort of white into pink and red and occasionally yellows, but uh, they're a sort of more of a rarity. They've got a really useful flowering period because they flower from sort of November right the way through into the spring. And we think of camellias as being spring flowering, but there are a lot of species and cultivars and hybrids that flower much earlier than that. So they extend the season nicely. So camellias in general need acidic soil. So a pH lower than seven to thrive. A good measure of the pH of your soil without having to get a soil testing kit out is look around at what your neighbors are growing. If they're growing camellias and rhododendrons and hydrangeas, and, and, and hydrangeas turn blue there rather than pink, then that's a good indicator that you're on a low pH soil. Failing that, you can go to a garden center and get a soil pH test kit. So besides pH, they do need a humus-rich soil with, with plenty of leaf mold incorporated. You know, I mentioned that they're woodland plants, generally speaking, woodland plants, so naturally will have a lot of leaf mold in the soil. They need moisture, but won't, won't tolerate sitting wet, you know, in waterlogged conditions. They'll start to go yellow and look somewhat anemic. So, um, yeah, best, best with some, some drainage. And camellias need some degree of shelter. They, they don't want to be stuck out in the open in the middle of an exposed field. They need protection from surrounding shrubs and trees or, or a north-facing wall. If, for example, perhaps didn't have the space or the right soil conditions to grow camellias in the open ground, then containers are a, are a good way of, of growing them. And certainly a lot of the ones that were thought to be more tender that were grown in conservatories or glasshouses would have been traditionally grown in very large containers, flower under glass in the winter and then put outside in the summer. Um, I think I'd probably recommend a mixture of a peat-free ericaceous compost mixed with maybe a, a John Innes number three, a soil-based compost, um, and there'd be some substance there that means it wouldn't dry out too quickly in summer. And so in January, we're at this sort of transitional point in camellias, but there are some interesting species, things like Camellia cuspidata, a, a very elegant plant with this sort of loosely weeping habit, very fine, narrow foliage, quite different to what we think of as, as typical camellia foliage. And these very small, slightly scented white flowers, much smaller than what we'd sort of expect from camellia japonica, for example. And that will start to flower from sort of early January onwards. 
And then there are a number of other hybrids. Some of the hybrids of Camellia sasanqua with Camellia reticulata, things like Camellia dream girl, which got an AGM recently in a trial of autumn flowering camellias. Camellia dream girl is a, is a large, very large shrub with, with very big flowers, big pink semi-double flowers with that kind of ruffled effect. They're sort of loose, loosely informal double flowers and yeah, a real sight in the landscape early in the year. And one, one of my favorite camellias is one called Crimson Candles and it's a hybrid of Camellia reticulata with a lesser known species, Camellia fraterna. And they're these wonderful, I, I guess you're somewhere between single and double, very loosely shaped, deep pink flowers. And it's got this very nice, elegant green foliage, nice habit and some scent as well. And, and I think what really stood out is its, its longevity of flower. And it'll be flowering from after Christmas well into April, you know, with the succession of buds that, you know, even if that current crop of flowers is frosted, they drop and then a whole load of new buds comes and replaces them. And yeah, you've got a really extended season of flower. And what's really interesting, sometimes when you see big old camellias, particularly some of the doubles, I think one of their negatives uh, is the fact that the flowers will, if frosted, they'll go brown and hang on the tree dead with obviously buds that will then replace them. Whereas what I really like about Crimson Candles is it, it, it's sort of self-cleaning in that it will drop the flowers before they go brown. So the display is never spoilt by the previous brown flowers, if that makes sense. So it's a really, really exciting new plant. And I think it, it captures a lot of the excitement within camellias. There's a new one called Cupido, Ross Thorniana Cupido, that's, that's come out recently and it's sort of now become quite widely available. And it's got this very elegant weeping habit with this very narrow foliage, almost looks more like a psychococca than a camellia. And then got these lovely apple blossom-like buds, so white, white buds tinged with pink, hundreds of them on a single branch that flower from one end to the other. And then they sort of open sequentially from one end to the other of the branch. And it strikes me as a camellia that anyone could grow, really. It's, it's small enough that it could be grown in a, in a container. Um, so even if you didn't have room for camellias in your garden or perhaps the wrong soil type, you could, you know, in, in a large container with acidic compost, it would be a really striking evergreen shrub that then rewarded you with a display of winter, spring flowers. On a rather bleak, cold January day, and even just a single camellia in a corner of your garden, they really provide the, these sort of pops of colour that I can't think of many other shrubs that offer. Beyond winter flowering camellias, there's a whole host of flowers that come into bloom at this time of year, giving us a little hope and joy when we need it most. For example, there's a sumptuous planting of witch hazels all round Wisley. There's our winter walk, with heathers and fine shrubs lining the walk to the glass house. The glass house itself at this time of year is full of lovely plants. And also, because it's been such a mild winter, if your fancy has been tickled by the winter camellias, there's a wonderful collection in all the woodland gardens at Wisley for you to enjoy. But flowers are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to appreciating winter garden details. So we're returning to Bristol to chat to winter gardening wizard Naomi Slade on what gives her inspiration at this time of year. We're sitting um, near the Clifton Observatory looking out onto the suspension bridge and out onto Lee Woods. 
The bridge spans a large gorge, fringed by limestone cliffs dotted with caves and overflowing with trees. The gorge is absolutely amazing. And it, it's botanically very interesting because it's a, it's a sheer limestone cliff, so it's got some quite interesting sort of native flora. There's the Bristol onion, there are various other things, but particularly there's a rare sorbus, which is only found here. It's a, a white beam. And uh, in the quarries, just on the other side of the downs, they actually dug a dinosaur out back when they were quarrying for stone to make the houses in Clifton. So uh, there have been people and dinosaurs here for a very long time. This is a beautiful, beautiful location any time of year. So here in January, we're looking out, got open sort of skies, high clouds. So there's lots of deciduous trees all hung with ivy. There's yew, there's birches. You can really see the sort of skeletons, the shapes, the sort of soft undulations of those native, native trees. It's one of those things which you come out and it really allows you to connect with, with the landscape, really feel the passage of time, really feel where you are in the world. And there's, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of permanence in looking out at woodland. And it's January now, but you can always tell when, when spring is coming, when that, that first hint, because the moss changes. So if you're, you're looking out, you're driving along the motorway, looking out at a woodland and you suddenly realise it's green, but it's not green with leaves, it's green with lichen, with moss, because it's, it's responded and it's reacted and it's coming into growth and it's vibrant greenness. I mean, that's the real harbinger of spring. It's not really snowdrops. It's the little sort of single-celled things that can respond ever so, ever so quickly. And you see that nowhere better than native landscapes. And I do think that's one very, very good argument for actually leaving the house and thrusting yourself into the natural world. My grandfather used to say, where there's life, there's hope. And the garden might look quiet, but it's not really. It's just having us on. So going along and sort of giving it a little bit of encouragement and enjoying in the little stirrings of... the, the stirrings of activity. And all those sort of opportunistic little flowers, things like Carmenanthus praecox, things like Lonistra fragrantissima, um, Viburnum bodenintensi dawn. Yeah, that'll flower on and off from about November until March, given half an opportunity. And it's always there, so every time the bees come out, they go along, there's something for them to eat. And snowdrops, they are very cleverly adapted, in actual fact, that they will actually open out when the air temperature reaches about 10 degrees centigrade, which coincides with the temperature at which it's warm enough for pollinating insects to fly. So they don't bother sort of flaunting their skirts and waving their knickers in the air when there aren't any pollinating insects. They keep their little reproductive areas nice and dry and protected. But when you have a lovely warm day and some flying insects, the bulb flowers open up and, you know, life is taking its opportunities and cracking on. Well, in the garden in January, first of all, go out and take a good hard look at it, see what you've got and see what you haven't got. Have a bit of a tidy up, get the pruning done if you need to, and put the things that are looking good that are mobile, like pots of interesting colour, where you can see them from the house, so you get the enjoyment even on dark, cold days, or, you know, if you've got the sniffles and you're sat there with a cup of tea. Then 
planning ahead to fill the gaps is good. Make, make a note, because you're not going to remember. You always think you do. You go, oh, there's a gap there, there's a gap there. But next time you're at the garden centre, you're going, hang on a minute, there was something I definitely was going to buy. So make a note and write it on your phone, write it on a piece of paper, so that you know what it is that you were going to buy and where you were going to put it. And if you're going to plant trees or hedges, now's, now's a good time to think about that. Bare root plants are available. Increasingly, we've been having quite dry springs. So when I'm planting trees or shrubs, I like to try and get them in ideally before Christmas now. So the roots have a chance to get, get going, get settled and start growing while the soil's still warm. But given that we're already in January, getting a wriggle on and, and planting those trees and shrubs and bare roots now, rather than leaving it until March, because if April's then dry, then they'll suffer from lack of water. So get them off for a good start by planting things in January. And if, you, if your garden is absolutely fine, or you don't actually want to do any practical gardening, or if you're looking at it going, actually, it could use a little something, but I don't quite know what, actually going garden visiting now to some of those big iconic landscapes, Bodnant, Wisley, Harlow Carr, Going out and getting inspiration is definitely a must-do thing in January. And apart from anything else, it gets you out. It gets that fresh air in your lungs. It kicks the cabin fever into perspective. Yeah, go and get that, all that inspiration. I find being outside in winter an incredibly reflective process. It allows me thinking time. It allows me a chance to feel my edges find out where I am. For me, January is a time to dream and just take little bits of inspiration from the landscape, looking at the details, looking at the textures, looking at the leaves that they are, looking at the places where the leaves are going to spring. As I look around me, I can see ivy berries, like you know, little clusters of black pearls. I can see holly with incredible glossy leaves. The elder tree behind me has got stippled, taupe brown, textured bark. I kind of want to leap up and, and just run my hand over it so I can feel how it is. I can see the black buds on the ash tree, little sort of cold tar buds, and they're gonna pop and they're gonna turn into these little cascades of flowers little fresh leaves. There's so much beauty. I mean, if you look under on the underside of branches, you see where the water hangs and there's little layers of moss just waiting to go a vibrant green colour the moment the temperature rises. There really is beauty everywhere. And if you focus on the things that are right, it'll probably be okay. Thanks there to Naomi. That was the third and final story of the mini-series we did with Naomi in honour of her book, RHS The Winter Garden. If you haven't already, I'd highly recommend you check it out. It's the perfect read for the moment. Speaking for myself, I find January a kind of pause. I'm getting twitchy. All those seed packets waiting to be sown, all that cultivation ready to be done, all those sticks and stakes and string to be made ready. But, of course, in Britain, February is as early as you can reasonably do it. So, why not take a walk round other gardens? So, following Naomi's advice, I went to Clifton, near Maidenhead, 
and had a lovely day walking round the parkland and along the river that flows round this lovely garden. So even if gardening activity is on pause, there's still a lot to consider. And we know that you RHS members have a lot on your mind. So to answer your questions, we've gone to visit our advisors at Wisley. Hello, my name's James Lawrence. I'm a Principal Horticultural Advisor based at RHS Wisley. And today we're going to talk about uh, some seasonal questions that come in. And I'm joined by Becky Mealy. Hiya. And Michaela Freed. Hello. Both horticultural advisors. Today I thought we'd have a look at some typical questions that come in from our members in January. And let's kick off with one regarding a citrus. So someone was bought as a present, a lemon tree, nice gift, but they're unsure of how to look after it and what care might be needed. Becky, have you got any ideas? Yeah, so often um, citrus can struggle indoors over Christmas and over the winter time because our houses tend to sit a little bit too warm for them. So I'd maybe look at bringing it into a, a room that's a little bit on the cooler side, so between 10 and 15 first off, and not by a radiator. They don't want to be sitting too wet in the pot, so maybe have them on a tray of gravel, keep the gravel just damp. Come the spring, start the feeding, start increasing the watering, and they should start putting some nice new leaves on. But yeah, lemons and citrus over the winter do look very grumpy. Great, thanks. We've had a question in uh, about a wisteria. So you might think it's quite early in the year to have one on wisteria, but of course, lots of people are starting to think about a February prune. So they often think about this in, in January. And this particular member had one, they've been in that house for about five years, and it looks like they've only ever kind of given it a light trimming. And they're wondering what they can do to get more out of it in terms of being productive and in flower. Michaela, what do you think about that? So with a wisteria in February, you need to prune the laterals back to two or three buds. And this might be a bit more difficult if you haven't done the pruning the September before. Where you prune back, this will produce your flowering buds for that spring. The flowering buds will be very round and fat, whereas the leaf buds are very thin and they're along the lateral stems. Yeah, and it's also a good time for pruning off a lot of the bigger, thicker limbs as well. So if you've got like anything twisting, because they do like to wrap mm. themselves around each other, and maybe simplify the actual framework and making sure that you've got some horizontal growth, because it's the horizontal growth that puts off the flowers. So if you've got everything going upright, you're not going to get as many flowers. So horizontal, like maybe across the top of the window or maybe over the door, and then you'll get really nice flowers. Yeah, that horizontal growth really important, yeah. like it is in some other climbing plants, like climbing roses. If you can train some of those horizontally, you will get more flower. And a lot of people just let the wisteria go up and get a bit tangled as well, as you say. So some good advice. Uh, we've got a houseplant-based one now. So someone has a, a calathea, and it's developed quite a thick sort of brown and, and leggy stems, which is kind of not how you would usually see them. What does the member need to do to make the plant look good and feel happy again? Or is this naturally how they look as they get older? 
usually with house plants, if they're quite leggy, that usually means they, they're not getting enough light. Um, with the calathea, there are jungle plants. They like more of a dappled shade, and so maybe they need to have a look at what room they've got them growing in. Again, with them being a jungle plant, they love the humidity, so maybe a kitchen or a bright bathroom. They can often be quite yellow if they're not getting enough nutrients um, or lack of humidity, but often it might be that they need repotting. So springtime is a great time for repotting a lot of your house plants as they're heading into the growing season. And you can take off some of the old leaves then, and hopefully this will regenerate from the base and new growth will come from the base because that's sometimes... You need to remove the old leaves, the old flowers. But yeah, they definitely love their humidity. So yeah, think, think like jungle. Yeah, so those conditions are ideal. And, and as you say, it's about re-stimulating that new growth from the bottom. If they're becoming a bit woody, getting that new growth up and growing, that will then take over from, from the older growth. They might even be able to divide it as well if they've got like a little bit of a side shoot that's coming off and actually start a younger, healthier plant rather than retaining the older plant that's gone a bit woody. If you've got it in the growing in the right growing conditions, they can live for you know several years, five to eight years. But often with quite a lot of your house plants, because our houses are just so dry humidity-wise, they do tend to suffer. Unless you've got a nice humid house like mine and have to have the dehumidifier working all the time. But yeah. <laughs> I've got a calathea and I find that I have to keep the leaves misted all the time. I mean, it hasn't been misted this morning because I'm not there today, but to stop the leaves from going brown, it needs to be misted. You mist every day. Yeah, nearly that's, that's every impressive. day. I'd, I'd forget. That's why I haven't got one. Put it in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, here's a question on uh, sweet peas. So someone who's started their sweet peas early, as a lot of people do, but they're starting to get leggy. And the member is wondering if this is because they've used a heated propagator. And is there anything they can do to stop preventing them becoming leggy, Michaela? Well, if you've got a cold frame out in the garden, then place your sweet peas outside. They have grown leggy because of the propagator and being on a windowsill. You can also pinch the tops out of the sweet peas if they've got more than two sets of leaves and then they will push out for you to plant out in the spring. I'd probably also kind of gradually put them out into the cold frame because obviously with them being quite soft from being in the propagator, maybe during the day have them outside and kind of edge them out over a couple of weeks before putting them completely in the cold frame, especially if it's a little bit frosty because um, it would be just too much of a, a shock. But what you're basically doing is keeping them there just above freezing so that they can get growing in the spring when it starts to warm up. And if all else fails, of course, just do some repeat sowings. You may not have the earlier ones come through, but at least you'll have more. And if the early ones do come through, then you've got that great succession as well. So It's good to so have a mixture. Good, definitely. Yeah. Uh, we've got a question here about snowdrops. So quite popular uh, asked at this time of year, and particularly about growing them in the green. So buying the actual growing plants rather than planting the dried bulbs in the autumn. So this question is really about how to quickly bulk them up because it can be you know, relatively expensive to buy them individually in the green. And is there something that can be done? The, the member here mentions things like potentially using root grow products or mycorrhizal fungal, but is there other things that they can do to 
ensure the success and the quick bulking up of snowdrops? Improving the soil is key. So making sure you're adding things like leaf mould because they're very particular snowdrops because they like to have free draining soil, but they don't like to sit too wet over the winter and equally or dry out too much over the summer. So actually getting that bit right is key for them bulking up. But they could use something like bulb starter, especially when you're buying something like a really expensive bulb, you want to give it the best you can. But definitely time is a big thing as well. They will take time to bulk up, but they will get there. But um, planting in the green is the best thing you can do because often the bulbs can dry out. Yeah. Um, they don't stay so fresh. Yeah, I, I get the impression that the member in question is looking for them to bulk up as soon as possible. But often, Michaela, when, they, when you buy them in the green, you can't always buy them in big quantities, can you, in, in one pot? No, well, the more unusual snowdrops are usually grown in pots for sale, but there's only one single bulb in there. So you're going to be waiting probably between three and five years before that bulks up to two bulbs. So it is a long process, bulking up. So if you want to get more a, unusual if you want to get a big clump and you're not worried about what cultivars you go for, then sort of go with the more common types where you're yes. more likely to get several yeah. plants in a pot. If you want just snowdrops, go for Galanthus navalis or Navalis floria plena. That's the double one, yeah. That's the double one. So Great. pretty. So all that's left for me to do now is to thank Becky Mealy and Michaela Freed for joining me. Thank you. Thank you and bye. Thanks there to James, Michaela and Becky. And just a quick note to say, we'd love to hear from you. If you're having issues in your garden or you have general horticultural questions you'd like addressed on the show, send your queries to podcast at rhs.org.uk. And before we go, I want to add on to what Naomi mentioned earlier about what you can get up to in the garden this week now that we're in the shoulder time of the gardening year. Still pruning to do those deciduous plants like soft fruit, including grapevines. There's getting the ground ready to sow and plant from the end of February. Clearing away spent plants. Ordering more seeds and plants if you haven't done it already. Buying bare root plants, they're often a, a bargain at this time of year. Cleaning the glass of greenhouses. Install a few more water butts. It's been wet this autumn, but who knows how much rain will fall in the summer. And get in some mulch. When the ground dries out enough, it's great to mulch it, keep the weeds down and lock the moisture in. So weather permitting, there's still quite a lot you can get on with. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress Robotic Lawn Mower, the lawn is actually looking better. 
The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.